welcome. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, if this is your first time, first time in a long time, if you've been with us before, I just want to say welcome, um, get a chance to hopefully chat with you a little bit after the service if I haven't already. And, um, and I'm glad that the sun is out today. Finally, you know, we get very, very thankful for when there is sun after times of darkness. Isn't that true? But um, today, believe it or not, um, we are wrapping up our series, The Bachelorette. Um, this is the last episode. We've been doing this six weeks. This is our sixth week. And I don't know if that makes you really teary-eyed or you're like, I can't wait to get out of this thing. I don't never watch the show. I mean, we're going to talk about the show. We call it The Bachelorette because it's the story of Ruth and about a bachelorette. Um, but um, today's the last season, believe it, the last episode, believe it or not. And, um, and as is true of many of our favorite shows, reality TV or not, um, usually the last episode goes by a special name, a special like terminology. Can anybody, anybody know what that is? The season finale, right? So this is our season finale. Um, and in the, the show, The Bachelorette, I've actually never watched the thing, but um, I'm told that there is also a new show called The Golden Bachelor. So those of you of age, there is, there is hope and redemption there. But anyway, the, so... Okay, moving on from that. That was just a little, that was a little extra today. Um, but, but anyway, the end of the show, The Bachelorette, so I'm told, and I've actually watched a couple YouTube clips on this, um, there's like a thing called the rose ceremony, and that's kind of like the end of each episode. But the last one is when The Bachelorette, the eligible bachelor of her choice, she hands the rose, and then they hug and kiss, and then they go off into the sunset. And we all know, especially all you married folks, that's not the end. That's just the beginning, right there, right? Um, but the last, the, the season finale, whether it's like Bachelorette or if it's a, like maybe just your, your favorite show on Netflix, whatever it is, um, it usually like ties together loose ends, loose ends of the story, people and their interactions. It also tends to look back. Sometimes there's like flashbacks to previous episodes. Maybe you see different people that have appeared at different times. Um, the season finale tends to connect the past to the present and then to the future season. What's up ahead? What's going to happen next? It's not just like an episode in and of itself that we're one and done. And and that's the thing that we're going to talk about today is, is this last part of the book of Ruth. And, um, and this idea really reflecting back uh, as well as looking ahead, but, but this idea that maybe has crossed your mind at some point, maybe as you've thought about your own story and, and maybe even your relationship with God. The thought is, if it weren't for this, things would be different. If it weren't for this thing that happened or this decision I made, whatever it is, things would be different. And we're going to talk about this thing called defining moments. That's really what those things are, defining moments. And I think a good illustration of defining moments in, in my life, in, in our lives, is um, that anybody, like as a kid growing up, you did those things called connect the dots. Maybe you have them with your kids or grandkids. Yeah, like connect the dots. Uh, I think a lot of times in our lives when you look back, and even when we look where we are, you could see like those defining moments as kind of like connect the dots, as connect the dots. So, um, so I'm going to have you help me just a couple of minutes just to kind of drill this in a little bit um, to help me connect the dots with some of these, these pictures. So ready? We're going to put a couple of these up on the, on the board. They're not that hard. What is that if you connected the dots? 
Ding, 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 unicorn picture, success. Y'all are on it this morning. Everybody is well caffeinated. Okay, what about the next one? It's a fish. Yes, you all are good at this. So pat yourself on the back, right? You did something good today. Um, Yeah, there's kind of like those things that you do. But did you know, did you know, these are kind of for children, but did you know there is, and I Googled this and I found it on Amazon. You can buy it today. It's called The Greatest Dot Adventure Book. And this is for adults, Christmas stocking stuffer. So um, did you know, this, this is a really, really crazy kind of connecting the dots. And let me just read to you the little thing on the back of this book. It's, you, once again, you can order this like right now on your phone if you want to. The, the, greatest, the greatest dot-to-dot adventure book series tastes the classic connect-the-dots puzzle to an incredible new level. These puzzles are hard even for adults. Well, the books include classic counting puzzles, including one with over 2,600 dots. Each book is filled with a variety of unique and clever challenges where numbers, get this, are replaced with symbols, coordinates, and even electrical circuits. There is triple-page fold-outs and quadruple-page fold-outs. And get this, some pages. Some pages can even have two images that you can make with the same number of dots. Seriously, a whole new level of dot to dot. That's the claim. That's the claim. And just so, so thinking about this though, right? Like, isn't it true that, that for some of us, like the defining moments in our life, they can kind of look like that? They, they might be the same amount of dots in a complicated pattern that you have absolutely no idea as you're kind of like walking through those, those things, but they might actually have two different pictures, things that are going on in them, one that maybe we see and then one that maybe, maybe God sees. It feels complicated. It feels like you're lost, but, but actually it's not. And, and the thing is with, with defining moments, sometimes what we think is really no big deal is actually a defining moment. At the time, you might not think it's a big deal, or maybe it's a tough time in your story, a time of of indecision or feeling like you're wandering. And not every defining moment is a choice. You know, some of them are intentionally thought out. Um, Some of them are actually the results of of past decisions, good or bad, and and that's the thing. And, And some just wind up happening to us. Um, and so maybe for you, maybe you are in a defining moment or whether you maybe might not realize that you are in a defining moment right now. But the truth is, just like Ruth in the story we're going to look at, just like Ruth, you don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what hangs in the balance. So season finale, chapter four, book of Ruth, it brings all these things together, reflecting on the connecting the dots of defining moments and it's interesting, the writer of the book of Ruth, like we said, this, was, this story was communicated probably for several thousand years before it was written down, about maybe approximately 1,000 years before Jesus, so we're talking about, about like 1,000 BC. But the person who uh, penned this, this book, finally put it down on, on paper, um, kind of structured this book with like a, what's called a, like a, has chiasms, or in other words, like bookends, meaning that what happens at the beginning of this story then connects to what happens at the end of the story. And so there's a connection there between beginning and end. And we see if we would look back and and connect the dots of Ruth's story, and this is a good practice too, by the way, if you do any kind of like devotional time in your life or journaling, then maybe taking time to look back and connecting the dots in in your own story. But we see uh, for Ruth, it kind of looks something like this. At first, she, she gets married to an Israelite man 
in the land of Moab. She's from there. She's from there, but he's not. And they, him and his family move there. And, and she gets married to him. And then he passes away. And there's a time of loss. There's a time of grief. She not only loses him, but she, she loses his brother, so her brother-in-law. And then she also loses her father-in-law. And it's just a time of big grief. And, and, grief. and her mother-in-law is named Naomi. And Naomi finally, after a 10-year time, decides that she's going to go back home. She's going to go back home to Israel, to the town of Bethlehem, where she's from. And so Naomi has a cho- or, um, Ruth has a choice. What does she do? Well, Naomi says, go home. Go home to your parents in Moab. But what does Ruth decide to do? Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you to Bethlehem. I'm going to go with you to Bethlehem. And not only go to, with you to Bethlehem and follow you there, I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to instead follow the gods of my land. I'm going to begin to follow the one true God. And and so they go to Bethlehem. And of course, there's two poor women at the time, two widows at this time. Uh, They have to make a living somehow. And usually what widows would do would go into prostitution because that was the easiest thing to do. But Ruth decides instead to work in the field to be a gleaner, to go behind the harvesters and glean food from that they had left behind. And she just so happened, those are the words that are in the story, just so happened to begin to, to glean in the fields belonging to a man named Boaz. Boaz. And Boaz, she learns, is related to her family, is related to her husband's side of the family. And Boaz could function in this society, kind of the rules as it were, were to redeem the family, basically to bring it back to life. And so by entering into the story, Boaz can become a redeemer, what's called a kinsman redeemer to the family. And so what happens from then on is that Boaz decides that he is going to enter the story, but he does so in the right way because he knows somebody is more closely related to the family than he is. And he goes about it the right way. He encounters this guy, once again, just so happened moment at the city gate. And he basically goes through this deal, and the guy, Mr. No Name, we talked about him last week, but Mr. No Name decides to decline the offer of this inheritance, which would mean the land would go to him, and that also Ruth and Naomi would go to him, and instead, Boaz takes that over. And there's this whole, like, sandal deal thing. Y'all love that, the sandal deal. Like, in order to make a business deal, it's like, took off a shoe, right? You take off your shoe and you, you make the deal. And so Boaz successfully becomes the kinsman redeemer to his family. He redeems the family. But, but looking at the connect the dots, and maybe you do this with your life, sometimes I do. What if, what if Ruth had embraced the philosophy of caution all the way back at the beginning? What if she would have returned to Moab with with her other sister-in-law, Orpah. What would have happened there? Well, we know that Naomi probably would have become another statistic in the world's displaced, impoverished widows. Uh, Boaz, what would have happened with him? Well, he would have just been successful. He would have been a successful business owner in his personal business, in all the fields that he oversaw, and probably he would have had a good life, but he wouldn't have stepped into this story. But also, had that happened, no one would have ever heard the names of Elimelech, Kilion, or Malon. That their names and their histories and stories would have been erased by dying, by their deaths. 
And perhaps, you know, those of us that know the end of this story, that actually Jesus arises from the lineage of this family, perhaps God would have used a different branch of Judah's family tree to become the producer of David and later Jesus the Messiah. So instead of a dull and disappointing story that this could have been, and that probably should have been, where, where the women would have probably waited and accepted the culture's verdict on their fate and would have allowed the situation to unfold and, and the death and destruction that happened. Instead, we have a woman who steps into rescue and revolutionizes a man to live out his calling and join her. That's the story. But, but also, it's important to go back to the beginning and recognize this is not a very bright time in Israel's history. Not a bright time at all, because this took place during the time of the Judges, a very dark time. The end of the book of Judges told us this, tells us this, that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So she did this during a very, very dark time. During a very, very dark time in, in history, in the story of the people of Israel. And so we're going to connect the dots on Ruth's story today from that beginning. And so looking at these defining moments, I think we can see four facts that we can recognize from Ruth's story. And that first part is that dark moments can become defining moments. Dark moments can become defining moments. And that's, that's in Ruth's story. You know, a lot of times, you know, don't, don't you and I, we, we tend to think that, like, defining moments in our lives, like, they're all the good things. Like, on the surface, like, they're all the magical times when you have several good options, right? Cracker Barrel or Olive Garden? Like, which one do you choose? Both good options, I don't know, right? Or, or maybe you're presented with an offer, right? Do you move to New York City or do you move to Edders, Pennsylvania? I don't know, like which one, right? right? Which one are you going to choose? But, but, you know, we laugh about those things. But, but, you know, we think that a lot of times, like, the, you know, defining moments, like there was something good that took place and it was presented with this offer, this option. But when you wind up telling your story, when you go through that practice of connecting the dots, more often what you tell are not good stories, are not good stories. You know, some things maybe that were done to you, some maybe that were chosen by you. I mean, we have to remember that Ruth, Ruth was part of a people who lived in this, this place called Moab, and they worshiped this God named Chemoish that had rituals of child sacrifice. So probably growing up, Ruth had been a part of those sacrificial rituals. She had been a part of some, some crazy things. And then we look at her, her husband and her father-in-law. Uh, we see Elimelech. Like they, they shouldn't have been in Moab in the first place. You know, but God used all of it anyway. God used it anyway. And, and you know what that means? Is that your screw-up is not too big for God. My screw-up is not too big for God. That, 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 did you know that, that God factored in your history when he chose you? God factor, factored in your idiosyncrasies and your failures and your poor decisions and your, your kind of so-so decisions. He factored that in. Did you know that God factored in your stupidity when he chose you? <laughs> I'm happy about that. that. That those dark moments can become defining moments because of the redeeming power of God. And defining moments, defining moments especially in our faith, and maybe your story reflects this, it sure does mine, often come from times of loss. Not that God caused it, but that those defining moments in our faith come from times of loss where we have a decision to make, a path to choose, 
Do I really believe this stuff? And am I going to stay on this path? Or am I going to go my own way and go back to Moab, to back where I was from? That will I do as everyone else is doing? They're doing right in their own eyes. Or will I turn around? And that's because dark moments can become defining moments. But another thing about defining moments is that defining moments also offer us an opportunity to give God a chance. And maybe that's part of your story, your story of loss. That was actually what propelled you maybe to to re-enter a relationship with God or to go back to church or to turn around and start reading scripture. It's an opportunity to give God a chance. You know, Ruth's story, the whole story, by the way, you know, over these last six weeks, it's a story of God's work behind the scenes. Uh, not once, unless somebody differently, not once have we seen, like, God, there was no burning bush that he made, there was no, like, voice from heaven. Like, none of that took place. That God was working behind the scenes. And yet, Ruth and Boaz, they gave God a chance. They gave God a chance to redeem and the result of that, the result of that after this, the, the deal is sealed that Boaz is going to move forward with not just inheritance, but also move forward in marriage with Ruth. We, see, we hear this prayer in the scripture that all those, once again, this is taking place at the city gate, which is kind of like I said, at the corner of 16th and Bridge Street. If you stood there, you get a lot of traffic that goes by on a daily basis and all the people would be passing by and watching and seeing. And so imagine that like, this was not just a little private gathering or business deal was taking place. This was in front of everybody. And so because of that, everybody that was watching, everybody that was witnessing, they, they, they all were so moved by what Boaz was doing, the sacrificial duty he was taking, basically allowing himself to enter in the story by giving up himself. And so we see their reaction in in Ruth 4, verses 11 to 12. We're told, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Whoa, that's crazy. Who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in, in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. So you and I read this, and like, once again, it's easy to kind of gloss over and just keep going on to like, like the wedding and all that kind of situation. But we don't notice the significance of, of these people that are praying this prayer and the names that they were choosing. See, Ruth gave God a chance. Ruth was an outsider. She was an outsider, and not only that, but a despised person. She was an outsider, I'm sure, when she entered into Bethlehem. And now we hear these people who are fully embracing a Gentile woman. They're not only embracing her, but they're naming her as part of the family now. In the family of God. In their prayer, you see some of those names, right? Like They connect her to some of the brightest luminaries in the history of Israel. They, they, she can, she's connected to Leah and Rachel. You look up their stories. They laid the foundation for the tribes of Israel. Then we see Tamar, the mother of their tribe, the mother of their tribe. And, and uh, both all of the foreigners, by the way, are married to Israelite men in that story. Both were widowed. They went to, their, to rescue their deceased family from extinction. You know, so there's similarities between Tamar and Ruth. And Tamar was also an ancestor of Elimelech, the father-in-law. She was an ancestor to Boaz. She was also an ancestor to Mr. No-Name, 
and others descended from. Do you see how she, they're tying in this whole story that she's part of this family? This was a prayer that Ruth would become a kingdom builder. Ruth would become a kingdom builder because God's in the business of building, not tearing down, of redeeming and restoring, not getting rid of. And nobody would have predicted this. See, those who would be listening to this story of Ruth would have been shocked, would have been surprised, would have been beside themselves. Nobody predicted this, and nobody would have predicted what would happen next, especially since at this time in, the, in her story, Ruth, you know, having been married probably for 10 plus years, had not had children. And so we see this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. It's crazy. It's crazy. Once again, why? How does this happen? Nobody would have thought that. The only one probably was Mr. No Name who was calculating his losses. Had she, would she become pregnant? Then that child would take over all of the land. He was probably thinking, I don't want to take that chance, right? And so we see this, and the word enabled there, by the way, the Lord enabled her to conceive. The word enabled is in the Hebrew, Yahweh weighed yet ten. Yahweh weighed yet ten. Can you guys say that with me? Weigh yet ten. Weigh yet ten. It means enabled. And that's, uh, it's translated enabled in the, in the New International Version. That's the version of Scripture. I'm using that translation. In the ESV, it's translated gave. The good news says blessed with um, the CEV. The Common English Bible says granted. So this is a God who provides, surprises, provides surprises, blesses. Will you give God a chance? It might not turn out how you thought, but there might be a blessing up ahead behind the door. Um, There's the story of um, the Benedictine monks. I don't know if anybody is familiar with them, but um, they've been having monasteries, groups of monks that would live together for for the last 1,500 years. And there's this thing called the Rule of Benedict that guides their life together. It's a Rule of Benedict. It orders their lives, and it instructs the monks on how they're supposed to live their daily lives um, together in community. It's a guide for them. And it's interesting, over the last 1,500 years, one of the things that the the rule of Benedict describes is a very particular role in the community. And that's the role of the porter. The porter. uh, The porter of the monastery. And so what is the porter? Anybody have a porter? Well, porter is one who opens the door to the monastery when somebody knocks. Kind of like the doorman in a way. You know, we have ushers and greeters that open the doors here. Like, but that was the person's job, like, the whole time. And it was an important role, a really important role, that, that this monk is to sleep near the entrance to the monastery, stay there at all hours, so that way he can hear and respond in a timely way when someone knocks. And then the instruction goes like this. As soon as anyone knocks at the monastery door, the porter This is really big. The porter is to crack the door open and reply to the knock, your blessing, please, your blessing. Give us your blessing. And imagine, that's before he even knows who's on the other side of the door. And so most of the time were the poor who would come to the monastery door to receive help, to receive something. And yet the first instruction of the monk at the door was to ask, Please give us your blessing. Please give us your blessing, meaning that you have something to give. 
open the door and receive that there is a blessing on the other side of it while you're waiting at the door. While we're waiting at the door that, to believe that there is something on the other side that can become a blessing, an opportunity to give God a chance, no matter who or what is there. But let me send, give you a warning there. Just like with Ruth, be careful when you give God a chance. Be careful because God, in doing so, may mess up your plans and your expectations and your ideas. He may mess up your trajectory or what you thought was going to happen or what was in your grasp at the time. Be careful when you give God a chance. But we also have to realize is that with our defining moments, the fruit, the fruit of them, usually takes a lot longer than you think. Takes a whole lot longer than you think. And so the story continues, verses 15, 14 to 15. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. That's kind of crazy to say at this time, by the way. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Has given him birth. Fruit usually takes a whole lot longer than you think. And if there's anything that I've learned is, is that us, and I'm one of included, is that we are a people who stare at microwaves. Right? Can't happen fast enough. We stare at the microwave that's going to cook the food in five minutes, but yet we stare and wait and look, and it can't happen fast enough. Uh, there were several studies that were done that, find, that found that we get frustrated after 16 seconds when a web page fails to upload. 16 seconds is our impatience limit. Um, when there's a traffic light, you're stopped at a traffic light, we start getting impatient at 25 seconds for that light to change. Um, when you're at a restaurant, the average wait before you start looking at your watch, before you start looking around, is 14 minutes is our expectation for the food to come. We're impatient people. We want things to happen on our watch, on our clock. And we see in the story, Naomi waited 10 plus years and for some of us, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait that long. Naomi waited 10 plus years. The fruit of our defining moments takes a lot longer than you think. It takes a whole lot longer. And, and it's easy to assume, and I get this, it's easy to assume that maybe it was the wrong decision you made when you have the wrong time frame. At the longer time frame of things, allowing God to do what God's going to do, it can lead you to believe, well, maybe I took the wrong path. Maybe, maybe following wasn't the right choice. I should have just done like everybody else and followed my own way. But the fruit takes longer than you think. But also a second piece to remember about that is that for defining moments, the fruit usually goes further than you think. It goes a lot farther than you think. And so the scripture, Book of Ruth, wraps up with this. Then Naomi... Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. 
fruit usually goes a lot further than you think. Generations further. We, we tend to underestimate the impact of our decisions and actions. And I think this goes for both the good and the bad fruit, right? That comes from our decision. But your defining moments don't only affect you. Think about that. Like how you respond to something that's happened. How you respond to, to a choice you've made. How you respond to a wrong that's been done to you. How you handle a disappointment. You know, your attitude in the tough times, how you live out your faith in daily life, how you trust God, that's not only impacting your trajectory, it's leaving a mark on those around you. People notice. People notice, especially kids. Those of you guys that are parents, grandparents, kids are especially observant of this. You know, you're impacted by what you see and what matters to to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle. It matters. Um, There's a story that that said um, a Sunday school teacher once asked her kids when they were gathered around for a Sunday school lesson, she asked them, why do we have to be quiet in church? Which they were getting ready to go into the service. And a little girl replied, because that's when grandpa sleeps. Kids are very observant, right? Kids know. They watch. But not just kids, though. You know, and that could be a really scary thought. And you know that if ever you like, have had a child start cussing or repeating phrases that you're saying, right? Um, I have a friend that actually, she has a macaw parrot, and, um, and she has to watch what she says in her household by herself because when she has friends over or people, family over, the parrot actually repeats the things that she says by herself and some are not good, um, even TV shows, believe it or not. But, but that could be a really powerful thought, a powerful thought that usually goes further than you think both in time but also has ripples to other people. Your story has ripples it, and that can be not just a, not a scary thing but a powerful thing because God can work to redeem your story. God can redeem the things that have happened in the past. God can redeem your family, starting with you. Starting with you. There's a scripture from Zechariah uh, 4.10 that says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Don't despise the small beginnings. God can begin there. God can begin there, but the fruit usually takes longer than you think. The fruit usually goes further than you think. And what's interesting is at the close of the story, something that we don't realize just in that passage I just read, is that Ruth is actually essentially giving up her child, Obed. She gives up Obed because Ruth and Boaz exit the scene. We don't hear of them. It's not about them. This isn't a story of a bachelorette or a bachelor. It's not about romance. It's not about true love, though those things may take place. It's not even about starting a family. It's about rescuing one. See, in the end, this closing scene of of this, this, this episode is an old woman who's standing there holding a baby and holding the future. Because we see that that Obed will not be the last baby born in Bethlehem. He will not be the last baby born in Bethlehem because of how Ruth and Boaz, Naomi, they worked together, they stepped into a story that their decisions led to something more. Because we see that in a scripture that's written thousands of years later, in the book of Matthew, in the New Testament scriptures, we hear this of Obed, 
that Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asia, Asia, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, Jerom, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and after Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. And then Matthew says this, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Fruit usually goes further than you think. And so in closing, you don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what hangs in the balance. You only know the moment that's in front of you. What we think often is an ending from a distance can actually become a beginning. Why? Because it's a defining moment. How will the moment that you face now define you in your next season? Like Ruth, will you give God a chance to redeem it? And ultimately, you and I, we don't know what hangs in the balance. We don't know what hangs in the balance of surrender, of sacrifice, of making that U-turn as Ruth and Naomi did. We don't know what hangs in the balance of saying yes to God's nudge. We don't know what hangs in the balance of forgiveness or grace. But what we do know is we can trust that God does. Let's pray.